Countdown for blast off. X minus five, four, three, two, X minus one, fire. of the Forgot My Dice podcast. I'm your host, Jonathan Edwards, and with me, of course, the Pacific Ocean to my big thing that separates leopards from jaguars, Mr. Robert Lundgren. How you doing? Hello, hello. I was struggling, man. I didn't know what to put in for the joke. I did not. I don't not... know that I understand that joke in any way, shape, or form. Yeah, I looked up puns about the Pacific Ocean, and it instead gave me like kind of a kid's joke, but what's the big thing that separates uh, leopards from jaguars? The Pacific Ocean. Oof, that's a rough one. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Oh, well, we're committed now. Yeah, yeah. As always, that I mean, there's no better way to thank the patrons over at Patreon than with that joke right there. <laughs> we appreciate your questionable life decision for supporting our questionable life decisions like that last joke. Thank you to all our patrons over at Patreon. You guys are helping us keep the lights on and the servers humming. We appreciate you. We love you. And now... It is time to move on to our day. What day is it, Robert? H- Happy National Crown Roast of Pork Day. That is an oddly specific call out. I know, and I love it. I don't even know if I've had a crown roast of pork, to be quite honest with you. Pork is not the only meat that you can make into a crown roast. You can do it with beef and lamb, too. And what kind of meat? That's is- the one with the little hats on the rib end, right? Yeah, yeah. It's made from the loin of the animal, apparently. So go make yourself a crown roast of pork and use that hashtag. Hashtag Crown Roast to Pork Day. Talk about your Crown Roast to Pork and how delicious it is, I'm assuming. I don't know. I've never had one. Gina, maybe, is this the year? Should we do it? Should we do it? You know what's sad? The reason I had to do this one is we've been doing this long enough that uh, of the four choices available, we have already done two. <laughs> Man, that's crazy. Yeah, this is the third one on that list that we haven't done. So I'm like, What happens what? when we run out of days? Well, we'll start repeating. See, I was... <sighs> I don't know what happened. Okay, so at one point, um, our, our the day that we released the podcast switched while we were doing this, and and, and that's why it's like kind of syncing up again. And I I don't know, and also because we've been missing weeks, and and you know our uh, our every other week schedule sometimes you know goes to three and five, and it just gets off. And so yeah, I don't know. Stupid I don't know. life. Yeah. Also, a surprising number of these national days are not necessarily based off the day of the month, but like, you know, it's like, it's the first or last Tuesday of the month or, you know, whatever, or the first Tuesday or whatever, whatever nonsense it is. And so, you know, because of that, they always land on the same day. (laughs) All right. So, uh, go get that white meat. In other news, it's time for our off the shelf segment. That is of course our segment where we talk about all the wonderful things that we've had off of our, off of our shelves and into our digital media players and our tables and our ears and so much more. Robert, where do you want to get started? Since we uh, since we got a complaint about it, why don't we top off our list with a little bit about our Knights Black Agent game that we finally played again last week or last we week. We had a complaint yesterday. about it? Well, Ray said that we forgot to talk about it a lot. <laughs> and it was basically it was mainly because uh, when I'd make the notes, it was usually several weeks after we played and I just kind of forgot to put it in because, yeah. Also, sometimes I don't start making the script until a couple days before we start playing, and then I forget what I've done. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know about you. 
Uh, it's the story of my life. But especially when we're having a month between episodes and we inevitably always played right after the last episode came out. Uh, I would forget that we played by the time I went to make the notes and talk about it. So, but no, well, we're, gonna, we're back in form now. This is what our third or fourth in a row without any interruptions. No, we it's been a month since we played, sir. <laughs> oh, no, I, I was talking about our, our podcast episode. That's true. It has been our third or fourth in a row of two week intervals, which is nice. It's nice to get back on that train, especially because I'm looking forward to 150 for various reasons. And uh, we were supposed to do it. It was supposed to be done by now. But because we've had so many delays, it's uh, now it's looking like it'll happen in the middle of this year instead of the beginning of this year. Well, we're almost there. Yep. 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 Yeah, we played again. We closed out the fifth chapter of the sixth chapter sort of adventure series, whatever you want to call it. I can't believe we're getting to the end. Yeah. 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 (laughs) We stole a plane. (laughs) <laughs> from a poor schlub and what what country were you guys in it was hungry was it hungry yeah, it was or hungry what? oh poor schlub and hungry oh that poor guy he got cold cocked <laughs> with a crit <laughs> that was fun <laughs> i neutered his children yeah no he punched him in the face he's you uh yeah i don't know what you did to him oh Ma- god but yeah, no, you guys were, were trying to sneak out of the area and you got bushwhacked by SAS operatives from uh, London. And uh, I was hoping to have it happen at night, but you guys conspired to make it not happen at night. But whatever. They were going to attack you at your safe house, but you guys decided to go to in the middle of a city. And I'm like, well, they're probably not going to make a war zone out of the middle of a city. So damn it. I, I, I shifted it to the airport the next day. But oh, well. Say we tried lady. to make it a war zone, but we stole a plane. <laughs> Were, were you expecting our approach to the the problem? I, you know what? Uh, I follow Matt Colville's GMing advice, which is um, when you make an encounter or you make whatever, it is not your job to provide a way out of it. That is the player's problem. You are just there to make an impossible situation. They have to figure out how to get out of it. And so, oh, yeah, no, I didn't mean from that perspective. I meant like, were were you surprised that we we took it that direction? Just as a as a, a fellow RPG player. I wasn't in that mode. I was just in pure reaction mode. So I, I, I didn't really think about it, to be honest with you. I wasn't surprised because I was just, you know, I, I, I was run, I was pulling all the strings in the background. So I was just trying to, to, to come up with ways to make it exciting. So I didn't have time to be surprised, Jonathan. I don't have time to explain why I don't have time to explain why I'm not surprised. Oh, God, how dare you? <laughs> how dare you? The, the only thing I was sad about is I did not get a chance to use the jet wash from the plane to knock somebody over. Ah, too bad. But yeah, no, no, it was creative. It was fun. Like, I, we, we were all obviously having a good time. So, no, I, I, I was not surprised because I, I didn't have time to be surprised. I was, just, I was just trying to pull all the strings and keep things moving. And, and I just didn't have a lot of time to think about it. I just had to react. So don't, 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 t- don't take my lack as a surprise as, as lack of enjoyment of it. I, I, it's just the frame of mind I'm in when I'm trying to run games like that. Well, I had a blast. It it goes to show you with the way that the Dracula dossier is written, which as far as I know, there's only two adventures that Pelgrane has put out that follow a sim- similar formula. Uh, the other one being for uh, Trail of Cthulhu. It's called The Armitage Files. Yeah, it's interesting how you just sort of have to roll with it. You know, like you, uh, a large part of this game is reacting to your guys' decisions and but it makes it makes it fun because there's so many adventures where the player decisions don't matter as much because, you know, there's sort of a railroady plot. But this one, you know, a lot of it matters. Like what you guys decide to go do really matters because it changes things around. 
And yeah, it's fascinating. Anyway, I'm having a good time. I'm having a real good time. It's making me think. As uh, are we. I hope it shows. Oh, it does. It does. It does. It's making me think maybe I should run the Hermitage Files one of these days because try to try to find that magic again. I've read the adventure. It's interesting. It's about uh, you uh, you go to the Miskatonic University because of course you do. You're like either students or faculty there. And there's a, a guy there. I think it's actually Henry, Henry Armitage, which is a, a character from the Call of Cthulhu verse. Um, but he starts getting kind of like manifestos. He's written from like a post-apocalyptic future that have been sent back in time. And you have to like read them and process them and try to figure out what's going on to stop the apocalypse from coming that the guy already exists in. But he's there too. <laughs> and he's like, I, you know, it's like, I wrote this, but I wrote this in the future. Woo. <laughs> I guess that's a spoiler, but whatever. It's a very old game. That sounds really interesting, actually. I would like to try that. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I read it a long time ago. I don't really remember the plot other than that, but the, the time travel thing was fun because uh, much like the, uh, the the Dracula book in this game, when you get those files, uh, it forces the players to read them given. They're only like, I think they're like between four and six pages and they're very big pages because, you know, they're the chicken scratches of a madman. So they're very big. Um, but you do have to read them and try to figure out what you were going to go do based off of how your reading of them and what's gone on in the game beforehand. So it's, it's interesting, but anyway, cool. I'm glad you're having fun. I cannot wait for you to read that book and, and take a peek behind the curtain to see what the, uh, what that man behind the curtain was totally doing while the big green head was spouting fire and saying stuff. You know, I am definitely curious. I cannot wait to see what it's like in terms of, you know, it being a GM, like that, that should be fascinating. It is. It is. It's a very fascinating book. Kind of, I was hoping to get the final part done in three episodes, but the more I think about it, the more it might take four or five. So I was trying to get them all done in three, but I, I, I want to go out correctly, I guess. And I, I had a weird idea in the shower, so I'm, I'm still kind of pondering it, but we'll see if it, uh, we'll see if I end up doing it, you know? All right. Where do you want to move on to? Um, hell, I don't know. Yeah. Uh, uh, I see video games. TV? No, I want to do video, video games. Ga- it is. Okay. Because I made the Destiny Destiny crack, so I, I'm still playing Destiny 2. Uh, it's fun. <laughs> uh, you keep trying to convince me to download it, too. I know. I'm, I'm fighting you so far. Yeah, you're going to get a brief reprieve because the new expansion actually comes out tomorrow, and I'm not going to buy it new. I'm just not because I, I like Destiny, but I don't like it that much yet. Um, and I was looking at it usually about six weeks or so after the new expansion comes out, it goes on sale for at least 20% off. So six, six weeks, six to eight weeks, typically, uh, just looking at the history of them in any event, I, I, I'm, I'm kind of with it. Cause like I said, I'm, I'm, I, I want to play the new expansion, but I, I don't want to pay $50 for it. I don't think I'm having that much fun yet, but we'll see. The new expansion looks interesting. Uh, it takes place on a cyberpunk city that's floating in the atmosphere of Neptune. If I, if I'm reading my lore correctly. So instead of like ruined post-apocalyptic, you know, earth landscapes and whatnot, it's actually like a, a modern city, you know, that's kind of foggy and it has a lot of purple and green and blue neon. And it's, you know, it's very like urban and, uh, and vertical and they're adding in a new power set where you can, um, uh, it's called Strand, and it gives you a new movement ability where you sort of like Spider-Man swing. It looks awesome. Yeah, also this weekend, they let the most recent expansion be free, and that was hilarious because I was reading all these things where it's like, oh my god, they tell the story so well in this expansion, and um, 
again, I had that weird disjointed experience where I was playing it. And part of it is because I've played adventures that take place technically after it. And part of it is because they do seasonal content and they release missions and, and story stuff with the seasonal content along with the expansion, because they'll do a big expansion and then three seasons. Basically, the storyline had advanced by those three seasons before it got to Witch Queen. And so there was this weird gap where I'm like, what the hell is going on here? Like stuff has happened. I have no concept of it, of it happening. Yeah. <laughs> so I was like, it, it was like the story's so good. It's like. I have no freaking clue what's going on, guys. Like this, all, all of a sudden, this new subgroup of hives showed up, and I'm like, "Who the hell are these guys? And why are they wearing purple togas?" I don't understand yeah. what's going on. <laughs> yeah, it's me every single time I try and play that game. Just nothing makes sense. I have no idea why anything's going on. Yeah, well, at least the at least for the new expansion, the storyline has definitely taken a turn because they it, it's about a new big bad has showed up and showed himself for the first time. And, uh, and there's this really, Oh, they, I, I actually got to play this mission. I don't, I don't know why they let me have it for free, but I took it. They did this really cool mission where, uh, at the finale of the last season, apparently stuff is, uh, there's a, I'll just send you the cutscene cause spoilers. If, if people care, it, it's pretty recent. So I don't have, I don't, I don't have spoiler immunity, but I'll send you the cutscene cause stuff happens to that cutscene. And, and again, you're going to watch and you're like, what the hell's going on? But then other stuff happens. And you're like, Oh cool. And there's a new big bad. So who's never really appeared on camera before. So at least there's that. Hopefully the next storyline will make sense. <laughs> Hopefully. Uh been playing city skylines a little bit and this is the one i want to talk about we have infected our discord server with vampire survivor ray is playing it and i think wombat is playing it as well uh, as are both of us <laughs> yep 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 oh that game's so good it's so it's, it's, good it has no right to be the as good as it is yeah also yeah. it's so cheap if you're not playing it really really what are you doing go get it yeah, if you buy it on Steam, I think it's four dollars. It's free on iOS and it's on Game Pass. Not even it was like three and a quarter. No, uh, I think it's normally five bucks, but yeah, when it gets on sale, it gets to a weird price. Uh, there is an expansion if you buy it on Steam too that adds in like a new level and a couple new characters. So fun. But yeah, yeah, you just roam around these air quotes maps and <laughs> you find stuff and it's it. They call it a reverse bullet hell game, and I'm like, yeah, that makes sense. <laughs> all i know is that i now understand how to make yourself into god in that game mm-hmm. and it's fun it's fun it's fun just watching the kill counter hit the 12 13 14 15 000 level you know what my record currently is no uh uh 64 000. well you're a lot farther along than i am um, there's a character you can get that has two pistols as their weapons and yeah, they actually have, that they have two pairs of two pistols. So somehow they have four pistols. I don't get how that works. Um, but if you unlock that person's super, which it pairs with this like chocolate cake that gives you a free revive. So, okay. Bonus. The, the two weapons condensed down to one and that basically makes this like this beam of death rotate around you from eight different angles. It's amazing. It's so good. <laughs> and you combine that and with you, the... You mix that with the garlic and the, the, the black yeah, and the white birds and you're untouchable. Uh, have you have you not unlocked... Have you not combined the birds into one bird yet? Yes, I think I have it at okay. some point. Yeah, yeah. I, actually, the one I like to use is the Holy Bible combined with the garlic because 
when you when you get them both maxed out and they're in their super duper forms, uh, the uh, the Bibles spin right at the edge of the garlic. So they come in, they tick from the the garlic, and then they get like just churned into the meat grinder of the Bibles. It's good times. <laughs> the birds are good too, though. I do like the birds. I, I did I did the impossible once. I started with the the two pairs of guns, and then I got the holy Bibles, the garlic, and then I got the birds, and I leveled them all up, which opened up two more slots. So I got both of the wands maxed out, and that was that was pretty good. That was pretty good. Nice. <laughs> the birds would be really good. There's an artifact you unlock later, which uh, most of the weapons only go up to like level eight, but this artifact allows them to go up infinitely, which is interesting. I haven't played it yet, but the, the wow, the, really? Yeah, but the the bird that means the 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 because the 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 green version of the bird levels up again. That means the green bird would level up infinitely if you manage to pull that off. Which yeah, <laughs> it sounds interesting. But yeah, we were talking about that for like a good fifteen minutes instead of playing yesterday. It was pretty funny. I'm sure we were boring Gina all to heck. Well, she needs to get on our level. <laughs> I keep telling her she should play it. She got really obsessed with this like puzzle freemium game. And, and I mean, Vampire Survivor is great. It's not twitchy. It's, it's just, you know, it's, it's a lot of resource management. That's actually its main thing. And then you just sort of like bop your character around. That's all you got to do. I mean, you're not wrong. That's probably why you board gamer guys like it. There's a lot of resource management in it. You know, there's a lot of like planning your build and building your engine. I can see why board gamers like it. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah, your 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 argument is solid. I I think that makes a lot of sense. <laughs> All right, well that's me. So what have you been playing? Uh nothing particularly new. Um still working through all of the the numerous Forza 7 campaign raises. Just going strong cuz Forza 8 comes out this year and I I kind of got got hooked into it again. Lincoln and I fe- finished uh, the Tomb Raider remake and we started Rise of the Tomb Raider and we've been having a good time with that. Lots of vampire survivors. And more importantly, uh, Rise of the Tomb Raider. I got a question about that. Is it just as gritty and dark as the first one, or do they lighten up a little bit? Uh, it's it's just as gritty and dark, but not quite so graphic so far. Oh, so you don't get like mauled by a wolf and watch the wolf like break Laura's neck as it's chewing on her throat? Not not yet. Not okay, yet. I'm not let- going to say it's not in there, but I haven't seen that yet. Okay, well, let me know. It, it, it is slightly different tonally. Yeah, the, the first one seemed to be really coming off the heels of Lost. Like, that was the vibe I got from it. Yeah, it's not like that at all. This is a bit more defined. Okay. Intriguing. All right. Um, and then I finished Final Fantasy XV, finally. Nice. And so I totally had a, a bug in my ear for a, a turn-based JRPG. And I, I know you had talked to me about it and several other people told me how good Yakuza Like a Dragon was. So I downloaded it from Game Pass and now I'm seven and a half hours into it. Yeah, we were talking about that game last night. It's uh, it's a little weird. <laughs> it can be a little grindy sometimes. That's, That's my true. only complaint. I, I like grindy RPGs because I, I, if I'm enjoying the combat, I don't mind getting into it a lot. Yeah, I, I, I don't mind the grind per se. It's just the 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 difficulty spikes in weird ways that's true because you go for a long time and you feel over leveled and then all of a sudden you are just getting your rear end kicked and you're barely surviving fights and it's so it, it gets real spiky that way that's true that's true there is a part that definitely that happens in like i you know i i finally have the broader city that i can explore and so i go to start exploring it and looking for that shop you're telling me about and all of a sudden i'm i'm meeting 
uh, enemy characters that are three, four levels above me and I'm barely surviving these fights. <laughs> and so, you know, like I want to keep exploring the city. So now I'm, I'm kind of grinding it out and, and gaining a couple levels to get myself on par. I think we should take the time to describe what Yakuza Like a Dragon is like. Well, I think I think the way I described it last night is it's. Um, well, let's talk about Yakuza one through six, because Yakuza Like a Dragon in Japan is not it's not called Yakuza Like a Dragon. It's called Like a Dragon seven. It is just Yakuza seven, basically, for them. Which is funny because it's not none of the other games are like this. The other games are kind of almost Grand Theft Auto free roam clones. Yep. Which is not a negative by any stretch of the imagination. They're engaging in their fun and they have an interesting fight system. Yakuza Like a Dragon is distinctly a turn-based RPG set in this universe that borrows its visual look. But the main the main character is legitimately crazy. Yeah, yeah. He describes himself as he really liked playing Dragon Quest when he was a kid. So when he gets in fights, he thinks of it like a, a turn-based RPG. And thus, that is why you see him that way. Um, and yeah, he is legitimately not entirely mentally stable. Like the, 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 the this world is bananas, absolute mm-hmm. bananas. Mm-hmm. It, it's like a, a serious Yakuza film, which is an awesome subgenre. And if you're not, uh, if you've never watched a Yakuza film out of Japan, watch them because they're amazing. One of my favorite little subgenres of films, but then it has all these weird idiosyncrasies. And absolutely bananas moments. Like I, I don't want to ruin anything because I wouldn't, I wouldn't, I wouldn't want to have any of this spoiled for anybody. Yeah, yeah, but it's. Uh, but there are moments of sheer insanity in this in this game. Hmm. Hmm. I I talked about this before on the podcast, but the best way to describe it is you get this guy uh, who's a healer, and uh, when he casts his spells, like he's got a self heal, and the way he self heals is he takes a quick nap just on the battlefield, just a power nap. And wakes up, that, and, and that's refreshed. what the move is called: power nap. Yep, 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 yep. And then uh, he's got one where he rets out a, a wretched belch and like debuffs everybody with a stinky cloud of his own. Oh, I, I still stand by my favorite, where he he has pocket seeds and he basically throws a bunch of bird seed at somebody and they get attacked by pigeons. That's how that game rolls. <laughs> I, I just spent like twenty thousand yen on weapons, and all of a sudden I'm I'm really I'm punching I'm punching a lot harder now. So that's good. Yeah, yeah. There's all these weird mini games in it because, of course, they got a Sega arcade because all of them do. But there's this movie theater you can eventually find. Actually, I found it pretty easy when I was just looking around the city. But there's this weird like sub game where you can take your friend characters to the movies and you got to like pick a movie they like. And then there's this weird mini game about staying awake. And it's it's really weird. (laughs) It's really strange. And there's a karaoke bar you can sing at eventually. There's a lot of weird mini games. There's that one that you found where you're uh, you're collecting cans on a bike and you're avoiding like the people. I've done that one a couple of times. And that one's ridiculous, but fun. I really actually enjoy that one. It's like Pac-Man. Yeah. Yeah. It's like like attack (laughs) Pac-Man. I'm glad you're enjoying it. I I really enjoy it. I need to I basically need to start over. I'm I got I think about 11 hours in, but I was borrowing it from the library. And uh, yeah. And then I haven't played it for like a year. (laughs) This just in, Wombat uh, put on our Discord just now, reading a silly Warhammer 40k book, a Magos, a, Ma- a Magos and a Space Marine are having a duel, and the in the early sword exchange is described thusly, Halberd slashed at Yell's head, but the Templars swayed aside and batted away the killing edge, spinning around and resuming his circling he was employing bonetti's defense and try a tried and tested technique but one that would struggle against an opponent with four arms capa 
would be a, the most logical mode of attack <laughs> such as, as such a defense. But from the motion profile he'd already built up, DeHaan suspected his opponent was luring him into s- such an attack. His footwork was uh, that of the great swordsman Chemos, Apigeta, but his grip was Tybalt, a mix of styles then. And he's like, I'm pretty sure that's a Princess Bride joke. And I'm like, and you know what, Wombat? I'm pretty sure you're right. <laughs> Hot off the press. He just posted that a week ago. So there you go. So what have you been reading, Jonathan? I am reading another Dresden book, Deadbeat. I think this is, what, six or seven in the series. So I'm just kind of, I'm going to chew through slowly the uh, the thing, the the series. And, and it's been a minute since I read them all. And yeah, just got to get caught up. And I don't think I ever read like the last book. That's why I'm kind of getting there. Just reminding myself before I get there. So at the library, I kind of have a little way I walk through it. I, I check a, a couple different sections. One of the sections I check is the new comic books. And so every so often I'll see something there that kind of like just gets me to pull it and look at it. And I found this one called The Nice House on the Lake. It's, uh, I forget what company does it. I think it's DC actually. I think it's their adult imprint, if I remember correctly. Not Vertigo because I don't think that exists anymore, but something along those lines. It was a 12-issue miniseries, I guess, or maxi-series or whatever 12 issues actually is. Uh, This collected the first six and it was really, really weird and interesting. And I don't want to talk about it at all because if you like comic books and you like it, it's it's horror. It's kind of a horror comic book and it's weird. And kind of, you've got me. You've got me fascinated. I want to check this out. But yeah, it's about a, a group of people that get invited to a nice house on the lake and by a buddy of theirs. And then and then everything just goes to hell in a way that you are not going to. Exp- I'm going to say it out loud and you're going to be like, well, what 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 won't I see coming? And then you're going to read it. and You're not going to see it coming. And it's very strange. Um, it's a good book, though. And, and it's very cinematic. It's like, it's like a TV show. Like if somebody adapted it for a TV show, it'd be perfect because the way every issue goes is there's, it starts with somebody talking and they're sitting in like the charred flaming ruins of the nice house on the lake. And they're describing a flashback and that goes on for two or three pages and then there's usually like a, a very long, like just like somebody's email or something or a text exchange between some of the characters. And then it flashes back to, you know, the, the story of the people getting to the nice house and what happens to them. And uh, it's really weird. Like every episode uh, is built around that or every issue is built around that idea. And it's a really interesting way to read it. And it's very it is very cinematic. And as I'm reading, I'm like this. Someone's going to turn this into a TV series. Like that's the goal. You know, because it's 12 episodes. They're like practically written for screen. It it, it would be very easy. <laughs> that sounds awesome. I really want to read that. Okay. Yeah, it's The Nice House on the Lake. I don't recall who made it. I did not write that down because I'm terrible. Nice House on the Lake. The Nice House on the Lake by James Tynion. T-Y-N-I-O-N. Tynan or Tynan or something, yeah. Yeah, yeah. James Tynan the fourth, and Alvaro Martinez uh, Bruno is the illustrator. All right, well, uh, let's move on to TV. Uh, not a whole lot for me. Uh, it's a whole lot of time, but not a whole lot of content. So uh, I have continued watching through the 2012 season of F1. It continues to be a banger of a season. Two races left in the season. Still no clear champion. It was an exciting season. Highly recommended. 2012 was a winner. Uh, And it's finally preseason testing time, Robert. And I have chewed through 24 hours of preseason testing. Not with 100% attention. I kind of have it on in the background while I'm doing other things, but I've managed to to watch it all. 
I am so stoked. First races this weekend. Is Lincoln excited? I remember he was your racing buddy. Yes, he's super stoked. We've been talking about it. He's a little bummed out because I have to go to San Diego to uh, take my pop to a, a doctor's uh, appointment. So he, he, we're going to be in different cities. We, we usually try and watch it together, but we're going to FaceTime. Awesome. That's cool. And it was really cute. He got really excited. There's an American driver on the grid this season, mm-hmm. and he totally wants to buy a, a shirt uh, from uh, from the team because it's an American driver. Awesome. Don't ever tell me that represent, representation of every kind isn't important to people because, yeah, I, I thought that was amazing. All right. I've watched a lot. I have watched a lot. I noticed that. Good God, man. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So I've been continuing on with Babylon 5. I am at the point where I need to watch the movie Third Space because it sort of slots into the middle of season three at some point. So that's where I'm at. And or at the end of season, I forget, wherever, wherever I'm at. It's 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 in the zone. But that's where I'm at with that. Uh, it's been a while since I watched it because the kids had a, uh, the kids had Monday off and then they went to school Tuesday, and Wednesday. And then we had a, uh, the Portland version of a snowpocalypse. We got Jonathan five whole inches of snow which is literally three more inches than I've ever seen here in my life. So that was kind of interesting. But yeah, the kids were home. There's no climate change, Robert. (laughs) But yeah, yeah, yeah. So the kids were home, so I I, I haven't been watching it as much. The daughter, we got through with the Harry Potter movies, and we're going through Steven Universe again. I forgot how good that show is. It's, It's really quite good. I would highly recommend it to anybody. I am shocked at how slow of a bird it is. It's It's very well done because... I remember by the end of the show, the character of Steven is basically the leader and he's running everything like he is the brains behind the outfit. And at the beginning of the series, he is just a dumb little kid that can't do a damn thing for himself. And just what we're in the middle of season two right now and watching the slow transition from Steven being this useless child to being the brains of the outfit is fascinating because it's very organic. (laughs) It, It works really well. Because when they, they, you know, basically because he's got, you know, magic powers, because of course he does, you know, they start bringing him along on missions to do stuff to help him out because it's he's got magic powers. It's just, you know, what he's supposed to be doing with his life. It does a very good job because Steven's kind of useless and he forgets things and he fails sometimes. But like a lot of his instincts are really good. Like when he wants to try something, generally it's it's a good course of action. Um, you know, like when he in the heat of the moment, when he says we should do a thing, like usually that's that's usually the correct choice. So it, it's cool, like seeing the, him go from this kid that they don't pay attention to, to him, to them starting to pay attention to what he says. And to the point, he's kind of in this like kid zone right now where he wants to do certain things, but they won't let him. So he's rebelling and sneaking off and doing them anyway, which is, uh, I don't know, it's an interesting show to watch. It's, it's very well, re- very well crafted. I would I still highly recommend. Speaking of which, we finished Lara Croft and the Tomb Raider, or Lara Croft, Tomb Raider and the Cradle of Life. That movie was so unbelievably bad, Jonathan. Oh, it's terrible. Yeah. It is a special kind of bad. Yeah, yeah. I, considering the last one wasn't that good. It wasn't that good, but that no, one was it's not, but, but it's not the absolute train wreck that that one is. Yeah. It's, it's boring. It doesn't make any sense. Uh, the characters are terrible. Like there's not, no redeeming value to it almost at all. Like at all. I can't even tell you who the villain was, to be honest with you. I don't remember. Oh, oh, it was the guy who played Caesar. Okay. I lied. I guess it was the guy who played Caesar in, uh, in Rome. Uh, it was that guy. <laughs> Which is sad that the thing I remember him from is not that movie because it sucked. But he had like a henchman. I don't know who the henchman was. He had like an, a lab in a mall. It's like, why do you have a lab in a mall? That doesn't make any sense. I don't know. It's just bad. Stupid. 
Uh, Star Trek Picard started. Holy shit, I'm going to win that prediction. F***ing A, Jonathan. It is so good. Holy balls. It just has to keep it up, baby. We're two episodes in out of ten. Holy crap. <laughs> Holy crap. What's wrong with you? You haven't watched Stranger Worlds or that yet, have you? Uh, dude, I'm so behind on everything. I haven't watched Andor. I'm behind on Marvel. I just... Mm, Picard's so good. Yeah, I, I don't doubt it. Like, it's different because, like, with the preseason testing, I can have it on in the background. I don't need to concentrate on it, you know? Like, I just kind of have it on. It's noise. I, I really just like seeing the cars, and I'm, I'm getting a good sense of what's coming just by glancing up every so often. But there's no real engagement. It, does that make sense? That makes sense. That makes sense. Whereas with new shows, like, I want to sit down and I want to watch it. I want to take it in. I want to study it. I want to understand what's going on with these characters that I love so much. And I just haven't had time. So this isn't a spoiler. The, the first episode has a lot of, uh, Riker and Picard hanging out together. I'm and, okay with that. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's, it's great. It's great because, uh, it's not like the first season of Picard where he's hanging out with his family. Um, it's, it's, it's Riker, being Riker doing Starfleet stuff because of plot reasons. It, it, it's one of those things that you could only get on a show that has been on forever. You know, like the, like Star Trek six, like just how like no, like, like Kirk has absolutely no thought that Spock won't come and get him. Like it, it's like Spock will get me. I don't even have to worry about it. He just knows him that well. It's like, this is going to happen. It'll happen. I don't have to worry about it. Spock's got this. That's the relationship that Riker and Picard have. And so much so that they've been doing a really good job of in a lot of TV shows when, when people who know each other really well, like are talking to each other, they kind of like overly explain. And the the dialogue in the season has been great because they don't, they don't say a lot. They just say, you know, like, are you seeing what I'm seeing? And, 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 you know, and, and it, it means, you know, it means stuff like, you know, they, they don't have to explain it. Like their relationship is just so solid that they can, you know, they, they know each other's shorthand and they don't, they don't dance around it. It's really good. It's so good. And there's a moment at the end of the second episode where I'm not going to say who was involved, but two of our favorite characters just look at each other and have like a telepathic conversation straight out of how I met your mother for like a good solid, like five or six seconds. And it's just on screen. All they are doing is looking at each other with like serious looks, you know, and glances and whatnot. And they have this whole conversation between the two of them and it's acted freaking beautifully. It's such an amazing moment. And I, you can't have that with people who don't know each other really well that you, you haven't been watching for a decade or more, well, you know? And, and I think that's good writing that they're relying on that. Yeah, yeah, no, it's and it's like, where has this writing because, been? Where has it been? <laughs> because last season was so you're bad. Right. Like characters that spend that much time together and have have served together that long, they they don't need to spell everything out, and it would make sense to do that. Yeah, yeah. Oh, it it's it's an ama- it's been amazing so far. It's been real good. I was telling you earlier today, it's not quite as good as Strange New Worlds, but man, it wants to be as good as Strange New Worlds. It's reaching. It's going hard. It's reaching for that baton and and maybe it'll it'll grab it. Oh my god, Anna, uh, what's her name? Um uh the lady who plays the villain. Oh, what's her name? I forgot her name already. Amanda Plummer is playing the villain. Oh, Amanda Plummer's great. Oh my god, is she good. She is such a good bad guy uh because she finally shows up and speaks in the second episode and like you does know she uh does she scream out um 
you know, anybody, <laughs> any of you effing pricks move and I'm going to execute every last <laughs> mother effing one of you. Replace that with some Trekno babble, and yes, that happens. Oh man, like you know, because she, she was in Pulp Fiction. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, I know. So I married Nax Murderer. I know. I mean, like, oh god, she's no, phenomenal. She, she is such a menacing presence, and it's so rare to see a woman in that role. Yeah, it's Christopher Plummer's daughter, by the way. Right? That makes perfect sense. <laughs> but Not it's just because of the last name, but, but I mean, both fierce actors. Yeah, yeah, but like, it's so weird and different and uncommon to see a woman inhabiting that villainous space where I am just like legitly frightened of her because she's, she's scary. And the character she's playing is scary. Like, like you just don't know what she's going to do. And she issues these vague threats and you know, she has the ability to follow through with them. And like, you know, there's some part where some combat happens and when combat's happening and, you know, stuff's blowing up around her and stuff, you know, like standard Star Trek stuff where like, apparently the, the walls are filled with rocks and the rocks come out of the walls, you know, <laughs> she was laughing. She was finding that fun and it made it worse because <laughs> she was enjoying herself when all this chaos was happening. She's, she was like, like she was like, she, she has a big enough stick that it's scary. And then when she, she, when she gets to wield her stick, she's happy. <laughs> and it's like, Oh, that's so much worse. Oh, it's, it's really good. I'm, I'm very interested to see where this, how the season pans out and they're doing a really good job too. The first episode it, it, they basically as the the original cast is getting introduced basically an episode at a time, you know. So they're not all showing up at once. Like at, like one of the old characters is showing up, and then they get like an entire episode to kind of like slot into what's going on. And then you know, then they introduce another one and another one and another one. Well, it's only been two episodes so far, but yeah. Oh, it's so good, Jonathan. Holy crap! Right, Holy. Well, don't don't say anymore because oh. I'm I'm having a hard enough time as it is. Oh my god, it's really good. Like it's it's yeah. They they said they wanted to give him a finale that was better than Star Trek Insurrection and or not Insurrection. Well, uh, that's Nemesis. not going to be hard to do. Nemesis, yeah, and uh, yeah. Oh my God! Like, yeah, this is the Star Trek Six of 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 the TNG era. It's really right, good. Don't don't tell me anymore. Okay, okay. I got to tell you one more thing. You know what else? No, is, no. You know, you know I'm what else? Not is, hearing it. You know what else is great? They brought back all the old music. It's been such like like my music geek in me has been so happy because like uh, they they brought stop. back. They brought back the Goldsmith theme. So instead of playing the Picard theme, you know, when Star Trek Picard comes up, it's like, dun, 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 bum, 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 bum. And I'm like, yes. And, you know, like um, when the evil ship appears, they have that that weird noise that that V'ger made that. Bang. And that's apparently oh, and that's, that's apparently it. And I realized what that that sound is. That sounds not part of the score. Like I thought at first I realized it because I watched the episode, the second episode again today. Um it's the drive of the, the, the bad guy's spaceship. It makes that noise when it goes. That makes sense. <laughs> and it, and, but it's the, it's the V'ger noise. It's that, that chime thing, whatever it is. Oh, it's so good. And yeah, they're having all these song cues. The credit music is from um, the, the First Contact theme from Star Trek First Contact. And they've been, they've been bouncing all over the place with music and themes from like the, the breadth of the Star Trek series. It's been All right, awesome. don't tell me anymore because I am already dying. Oh, it's so good. So, uh, all right, let's, let's round it out. Okay. Uh, uh, board games left. No, no, I got one, one last thing. Uh, I started, I watched the entire Lord of the Rings trilogy with my, my son, Miles. Cause he, he, he's, he's a boy and he likes swords. That was a lot of fun. Um, 
he has six-year-old energy because he's six. And so we're, we're watching the battle scenes. And like at the beginning of the battle scenes, he's just staring at the TV. And then when like, you know, like the writers of Rohan start going or whatever, he starts like jumping up and down because he's so excited. And then when they start clashing, he can't, he, he stops watching and he starts battling himself like he's in it with them. You know, it's so I mean, he's cute. six, of course he is. Yeah, it's so cute. It's so cute. And then he comes home today and he's like, dad, I drew a picture at school. And I'm like, oh, cool. What is it? It's like, it's, it's my character and you and a creeper from Minecraft and they're fighting a dragon. And look, look, he shot an arrow into the dragon's butt. (laughs) 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 And he's like, my guy has a sword (laughs) and and he's just, oh, it's so adorable. And uh, yeah, his favorite character is Legolas because like when Legolas did the thing where he stuck the orc in the eye and then drew it back and shot another orc, he watched that. He's like, his like mind was blown when he watched that. And he's like, that was so cool. And I'm like, yeah, just wait till you see the cool thing he does in the next one. And he's like, he does something cool again. <laughs> and then when he, when he did the shield thing, he's like, did you see him? Daddy surfed at the shield on the thing. I'm like, yeah, just wait till you see what he does in the, in the next movie. He's like, he does something better. <laughs> And then, you know, when, when Legolas goes in for the mama kill in Return of the King, he, 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 he's sitting there and he's just watching. He looks at me. He's like, Dad, Legolas is doing his awesome thing. <laughs> oh, it's so nice. Kids are awesome. Yeah, yeah. I, I love my daughter, but my daughter is very much her own person, which is fine. It's it's getting me exposed to uh, to different stuff, which has ultimately been rewarding. But uh, having right. my, my two 10-year-olds just sit there and try and convince me to watch Megan with them. Yeah. Solid no, kids. Solid no. But yeah, no, having having one of my boys be super into stuff I'm into, it's it is really nice. It's really nice. He's he's my little clone. He's my mini me. It's fun. Oh, I know, I know. That's what I get with Lincoln and F one, man. I, yeah. I fully understand. Yeah. It's good stuff. Anyway, okay, that's it. I'm done with the movies. Board games, go. All right, not much on the board game front. Um, obviously doing some review prep for today, so I've been playing some Heroes of the Pacific and then um, some additional review prep in playing some Trudvang Legends. And then um, I, I taught somebody welcome to. I taught a friend of mine welcome to. I was supposed to text you and tell you to start a game of that today. You did not, and so therefore I did not. Okay, well, while we're... Do better, try again tomorrow. Okay, fair enough. <laughs> Uh, all right. Well, that brings us to the end of our off the shelf segment, which means it is break time. And when we return, it will be time for our wisdom of crowds. We will be right back. We love getting feedback. So please let us know how we're doing by one of the following. You can become our patron over at Patreon. Search for Forgot My Dice. We also have a Discord page where we organize games and chat about all sorts of stuff. Find a link on our website, ForgotMyDice.com. You can also message us or tweet at us on the Twitters. Find us at ForgotMyDice. And, of course, you can email us at FMDPodcast2016 at gmail.com. Or you can head on over to our website, ForgotMyDice.com, where all of our episodes are available, plus game reviews and other content. If you like the show, the best way for more people to find out about us is to give us a review on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, or Stitcher. Last of you, for those of you listening in the village, call the operator, give your number, and ask for us to be put on the rotation. Robert, this, this needs to stop. Listen, I'll, I'll make you a deal. I will not make any deals with you. I will not be pushed, filed, stamped, indexed, briefed, debriefed, or numbered. My life is my own. Oh, God, I'm going to cut his cord. 
And welcome back from the break. It is now time for our Wisdom of Crowd segment. That is, of course, our bi-weekly tabletop news segment, or in this case, our like bottom of the barrel scraping across it, trying to get those last few crumbs of news segment. It's been a slow week, Robert. It's been a it's been a slow year. Like this post-COVID stuff, like product slowdown has been a, a real legit thing. It's 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 everywhere. Yeah. Yeah. No joke. Well, I only have a couple stories. How about yourself? Ditto. All right. Alderac Entertainment Group, also known as AEG, uh, is going public with some of their playtesting. They are releasing a new expansion for Space Base, the game by John D. Clare, and they are asking for people to sign up and uh, give it a test. There's a forum posting on BoardGameGeek. John D. Clare, the original designer, uh, that you might know the know him from not only Space Base, but also Mystic Veil and Ready, Set, Bet, Um, And he has attached a downloadable PDF that contains the rules for the expansion and a bunch of new cards without art. Uh, And uh, yeah, he'd like you to play test them and leave feedback on the forum thread. Huh. It's the Genesis expansion to Space Base. Uh, It's a reasonably simple expansion. And it's, you know, there you go. If you want to see what it's all about, go take a look because you can play it now. Well, now I'm looking at the Space Base. Space Base looks cool. I've not tried it yet, but it looks really cool. Ah, I like the art. Like I said, it looks cool. Space Base got a uh, got a love a lot of love for me recently because uh, uh, Ryan Dancy worked there and he was doing the rounds because of the OGL nonsense. And I'm like, I did not know he was working at Alderac. That's fun. <laughs> I wonder if he still lives in Seattle or if he moved to on beautiful, beautiful, sunny and lovely Ontario, California. Which, by the way, if you ever leave, if you ever live in the LA area, and you want to um, fly cheaper, go to Ontario instead of going to LAX. They have cheaper uh, landing and fuel fees, and it's always, always a little bit cheaper. Also, you're very close to that Ontario Mills, which I think is one of the few uh, Rainforest Cafes left alive. Is there? So, hmm. Oh, Rainforest Cafe! <laughs> Don't quote me on that. So, fresh off their multi-million dollar Kickstarter where they made all of the money in the RPG space, the Avatar RPG Starter Box is coming soon to a target near you if you live in the United States. Uh, Says it's available right now. Uh, Basically, yeah, you get this box set at Target. It has a rulebook dice, map, combat cards, pre-generated characters, and two adventures, Pirates of the Crimson Sails and the Burning Fuse. Uh, that first adventure is set in the era of Aang and the latter during the era of Korra. And if you live outside the States, it will be available. <laughs> wait, oh, so wait, this is this is the, the last airbag? Yeah, Avatar. You said Avatar and instantly my brain went to the movie. Uh, because it's been in the, it, it's been all over the news and stuff. Oh, uh, true, 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 true. I guess it's not the only culturally relevant Avatar anymore. I forgot about that. This all makes so much more sense. <laughs> As of April 12th. Uh, it'll be available internationally at other retailers, which they have not named yet. And uh, it also includes a discount code for the Demiplane tabletop RPG thingy, the digital tabletop. There you go. To have the online tools online. Uh, so you can get them at a, a coupon, basically. Go clip your coupons. So there you go, Jonathan. All right. Next up on the news is Istanbul. Uh, is getting a new game from Pegasus Spiel. It's Istanbul Choose and Write. Wait, wait, wait. What was the name again? Istanbul? Not Constantinople? (laughs) I knew it. (laughs) Well played. (laughs) 
Um, yeah, so Istanbul uh, started out life as a board game. Then there was a dice version in 2017, and this is a card-based flipping right. You're gonna, you can play cards in any order. You can uh, take actions. You can place your shops. And yeah, it's just a a, a flipping right version of the game, and it looks awesome. Actually, I was uh, uh, reading the rule book, and it totally looks fantastic. Hey, One hey, to Jonathan? five players, and Jonathan? it's got a super quick play time of thirty to forty five minutes. Jonathan, yes, would yes. you call it a uh, Turkish delight on a moonlit night? Ooh, yes, I think I would. Yes, I think I would. Mm-hmm. Did I just completely derail you? Or are you looking up lyrics too? <laughs> uh, I can't remember what song that was from. I, I re- recognize the lyric, but I can't remember the the song. It's real easy. It's called Istanbul bracket. Not Constantinople. End bracket. No, they, 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 uh, they might be giants. That's who it was. You know, actually, I, I, I found it. I found place. out that's a cover of an old timey song, which is really funny to listen to if you hear it, because it's like kind of that fifties, like, or maybe it's forty. I don't know, but it's like Istanbul, not Constantinople. I, I can't say I've ever heard the original, but I, the, yeah. they might be giants. One. That's a weird band, too, by the way. Mm-hmm. But we're talking about the board game Istanbul, not the board game Constantinople. Very true. Completely been a long games. time gone, can't Constantinople. That is true. It's an old. It's an older game, but not in. But not Istanbul. Well, just remember, if you, if you have a date in Constantinople, she'll be waiting in Istanbul. Mm-hmm. Even though New York was once New Amsterdam. Why they changed it, I can't say. Been a long time gone, okay, Constantinople. The next line is pe- I, people just liked it better than God damn it, John. I hate <laughs> you. This is riveting radio. <laughs> they might be giants. God, I f- forgot they existed until you made <laughs> this reference. <laughs> this will date me, I guess. I, the first time I remember hearing that song, it was uh, like a music video on Tiny Toon Adventures. Oh, I remember that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh, they're still around. They're still touring. Yeah. That's where the money is, man, going on tour. It's not in the music anymore. You're not kidding. Well, from our friends at Free Legan, a.k.a. the Free League Publishing, uh, coming to Kickstarter very, very soon on March 14th, the Walking Dead Universe RPG will be a thing that you can put your money into. Uh, it's going to be using all of their standard stuff. Uh, backers will gain early access to the core rulebook via PDF uh, before release, obviously, and, uh, you know... Expect a lot of add-ons and whatnot for this. Uh, usually, usually they fund at least an adventure book and some other odds and ends, which is which is fun stuff. But uh, yeah, uh, a week after this hits the air, it'll be uh, it'll be on the Kickstarter if you are into those Walking Deads. Yeah, man, that's the end of the news. <laughs> like, I wasn't kidding when I said it was dead. It, it's 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 bad. Or positive podcast. What if? Um, People are getting their, their COVID stuff sorted out, and it's just the calm before the storm. Oh well, we we know it's the calm before the storm because we're we're in February, and you know that it's going to be the big Gen Con rush. Right now, I'm 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 living for April because in April we're supposed to get the the new legendary uh, game, the Matrix one, and that's I really want that. Whoa! <laughs> exactly. You know, there's going to be a card in there that says that, and I know Kung Fu, and I'm okay with both of those. You know, well, what? that being the end. You know, I was about to say, Jonathan. I was about to say, did you know that even a pinky could be kung fu? But you haven't watched that movie yet, so I won't go there. We'll get there. 
All right. Well, that brings us to the end of the news, which means it is time for part 25 in our 44-part series, A King in All Things, where we are watching Stephen King movies based on novels and novellas in order of release date with the occasional extra, which I, I believe this is an occasional extra, is it not? Indeed. We watched 2004's Salem's Lot, starring the Rob Lowe's and directed by Michael Salomon. It was made for a budget of $25 million and it was a TV miniseries, so I, we, I couldn't find out how that translated at all. At, at all. Basically, we both decided we wanted to watch it because we had such a fun time with the, uh, with the original miniseries, because it was so surprisingly good out of nowhere. <laughs> Just out of completely and, and, and has still held up on the rankings, mm-hmm. I might add. Mm-hmm. Like that thing is not giving up at all. It's still sitting in the top ten after twenty-four uh other other films. Yeah, yeah. I think it's I think it I think it got bumped down to six or something like that. No, it's seventh now. It's seventh, seventh, yeah. Well, it that it's still in rarefied air. I guess we need to go over the pl- the plot again. It's uh Stephen King trying to do Dracula in the modern day, I guess. Uh, this, uh, writer returns home to his, uh, town of Jer- Salem's lot. I'm not even going to say that J word cause I can't do it right now. I, same thing. Jerusalem's as, lot. Yeah. Just, just that word does not roll off my tongue. Well, <laughs> well so yeah, he, I, he, he, it's the town of Jerusalem's lot, but the locals call it Salem's lot because that is just too many syllables. It's a mouthful. Apparently it's okay. too, too much to say, too much to say. Uh, and then at the same time, uh, a vampire moves to town and, Dude, where do you want to start with this movie? Because, like, it's so equal parts good and cringe. I don't, I, I legitimately don't know where to start. Okay, well, obviously, it did not hold up to the original. <laughs> I think that's safe to say. The original. But, but here's is, the thing, like, there's pieces of it that are really good. Like, that's, that's the thing that kills me. And here's the thing. Here's the biggest thing. I think that it both makes it uh, sink and swim in pieces. It's a lot more grounded than the original TV miniseries. The original TV miniseries was a little kind of 70s camp, I guess. Um, Yeah, absolutely. And this one was very dark, very dark. Like they uh, because like they they make this big point that, you know, small towns have their secrets. And, you know, Salem's Lot was that, too. And so they go for like the first hour, really. They go kind of deep into this town and its seedy underbelly and uh, which is fine and all whatever. But. The problem with that was, ultimately, because it was darker and grittier, it was more grounded. And so as the movie was playing out, I started noticing the story's inconsistencies more because, you know, because it was treating itself more seriously. I was taking its story more more seriously. And the thing that kept getting to me is like, what's the vampire's plan? <laughs> like, <laughs> like, it's like, I'm. It's and that's like, where it all fell apart. Yeah. It's like, like, it's like, a, it's like a gnome plan from South Park. You know, it's like. Step one, churn the entire town into vampires. Step two, step three, profit. And it's like, what, what, how, what's going on here? And that was the part I couldn't figure out. And because, because it was taking itself seriously, it became really, it became really weird because it was like this vampire zombie apocalypse, I guess. I don't know. Yeah, it just, it didn't make any sense. It didn't, it didn't work because of that. And then on top of that, um, a lot of the plot threads that they, they dump out, you know, showing the, the town's seedy underbelly, you know, they bring them up like once and then they like maybe bring them up again and then it's over. Like, you know, there's no real through line with a lot of them. Like there, there's just a lot of these little sort of mini stories that kind of happen. I don't know. It's bizarre. Uh, it just, it didn't, it just didn't work. The original mini series very wisely cut out 
because apparently that's true to the book. I need to read the book again, but apparently the, uh, the original miniseries cut out a lot of that stuff and, you know, really condensed the story down to the core, which was like, dude meets girl vampires, you know? And because of that, it worked because it was tight, but because the story was so sprawling, like nothing, nothing had room to breathe. It just kind of felt like things were going from thing to thing to thing to thing. They also changed the beginning and the end, basically, I guess, to make it different than the original miniseries to try to do something different in those bits. And uh, I don't know, it just it just didn't quite work. I don't know. It just never quite gelled correctly. And it didn't help at all that like some of the like Rob Lowe was like treating his character like Ooh, he would talk about phoning it in. Yeah. Yeah. He was just like reading his grocery list. And it's like, I, I mean, I don't expect a ton out of Rob Lowe, but like, I mean, his, his character in Parks and Rec, like I, I know that dude can do some stuff. I mean, hell, I I, he, I think he did the specials around the same time. And I love the specials. That's a real cheesy, weird movie from James Gunn. I don't know if you've ever yeah, seen it. Yeah, it is. But, and he, he was pretty decent in that. But this one, he was just sort of, he was just like, yeah, oh my God, there's vampires. Yeah, you know, this town has a dark city underbelly. It's it's real bad. It's real, it's real bad. Uh, the Marsden House, I, I saw a dead body there. It made me cry. You know, I was like, what? What's going on? But, I don't but here's it. the irony of Rob Lowe being the lead in that movie. Like, the supporting cast is stupid. Stupidly good. Mm-hmm. You've got Rutger Hauer as the big bad, and he's criminally underutilized, I might add, because every scene he's in, he just he just rips it apart and chews it up because he is so freaking good. You want to hear a funny anecdote I read while I was researching this movie a little bit? Yeah. Okay, so you know at the end when he's in his coffin and he's telling he's telling Rob Lowe's character, it's like, you're a parasite just like me. You feed off of, you know, people's stories and fear. Nah. You know that whole speech? Uh, apparently yeah. Rutger Hauer came on the set and he's like, I don't I don't like that speech. I got a better one. And so apparently when they started filming it, he started rambling about being a cowboy or something. <laughs> and just <laughs> and and the director argued with him. And it wasn't that he didn't like the speech, he just didn't bother to learn it. And so when they filmed it, uh, Rob Lowe was on set, like leaning over the coffin to, because he had to be in frame, I guess, and just like taped to the ceiling behind him were cue cards with the entire speech on it that he was just reading over his shoulder. <laughs> yeah, but you'd never know. You'd never know because Rutger Hauer is so freaking good. So it's like it's so weird. You got Rutger Hauer as as Kurt Barlow, the vamp. He's amazing. You got Donald Sutherland as Richard Straker, which definitely does not sound like a porn name at all. He's fantastic and creepy. You've got Andre Brower as Matt Burke. Yeah, uh, Sutherland, he made a really good Redfield. Like, he was really good at that. Yeah, man. That it was freaking great. He was so, so good. And, like, when he starts chasing around Samantha Mathis around the house, that was amazing. Yeah, that was pretty creepy. You got Andre Brower, who is just knocking it out of the park with his scenes. And, like, the subtle undertext of every scene that he was in, especially with, you know, given his relationship status shall we say and the small town and how they would obviously treat him especially given that it was 2004 really good and then you've got like samantha mathis and rob lowe and they're just painful every scene they're in is painful yeah yeah agreed oh and we forgot about we forgot about uh zephram cochran was in it too he plays this oh yeah james cromwell james cromwell yeah Yeah, he loses his faith that'll do (laughs) <laughs> Oscar please yeah man like it's it's such a mixed bag and and th- I think that can extend to everything there's moments that really work like 
the voiceover of of his writings that introduce certain parts of the story. Oh, I really, hated really those. Work. I hated those. Uh, those they sound- didn't bug me at all. That, that his sounded- delivery was terrible. His delivery was terrible, but the uh, use of it as a plot telling device worked for me. Oh, I, I hated it. It reminded me of that game they played on Whose Line Is It Anyway, where they played Noir, and all I could see was Ryan Stiles staring at the camera, smoking a fake cigarette. <laughs> okay, that's but all I could see. Then on the other side of things, you've got like these super troublesome character portrayals. Like there's a character that, that has, um, uh, how would you explain it? Like he's got a deformity, but he also has a, a something going on that's never really fully explained from a, um, a mental acuity perspective yeah and he's handled like such a, a bs caricature man like it's yeah. so insulting and terrible and then being a vampire air quotes fixes him yeah, yeah. That, that that whole thing was terrible but then on the other side of the spectrum you've got freaking lisa gerard writing the score like i just oh man it's such a 50 50 movie yeah well and i think it exposes one of the main problems with the source material, which is like, what, what is the vampire's plan? Like what's, why is he turning everyone into vampires? Like, how does he win from that? I don't, I don't get it. You know, it doesn't make any sense for a super predator to, to basically breed an army of competition. That makes no sense. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, considering it's supposed to be like a modern retelling of Dracula, it it shows how close, you know, Stephen King actually read Dracula because Dracula's goal very obviously was not, to just make an army of vampires. He was up to political shenanigans or something, but some of the, some of the deleted scenes in that kind of, kind of imply that, but whatever. Anyway, the point is like as a seventies campy fun, you know, horror movie, it worked really well. And, and that the plot of him making a bunch of vampires, it didn't matter. Cause he looked like a goddamn Norse Feratu. You're not taking it super seriously. You know, it was, it was you know, comedy and horror have like a lot in common, you know, and and because it was a little campy in the little 70s, it, it kind of leaned into that more where this one was just dark. And when you're dark and you're serious, you actually have to think about these things. And it it just didn't work like a lot of a lot of what was going on just didn't work because of well, it. And, and, and there's a lot of scenes that really do work, like the, the creepy kids on the bus scene. But all the kids are vamps that I thought that was super effective. Like that was creepy as all get out. Gave me the shivers. Uh, that's that's I was reading a couple of reviews of the time and a lot of people complained there weren't a lot of scares in it either. And I, I'd agree to that. It was it was very mellow for the most part. There were a few there were a few it moments. Was. It was it felt stretched out because it was a made for TV movie uh, miniseries and they, they stretched it too far. Yeah. But you want to hear something crazy? The original miniseries was four minutes longer. They had the same runtime, essentially, essentially. And the miniseries was so much better. Like it, it, it was creepy. It was taut. It had mood. It had a whole bunch of really good stuff. And in the same runtime, they couldn't do the same thing. It's, it's weird, you know, like, you you know what I think it was, there is a distinct pacing issue because the first half of the film, um, like whatever the first episode, I guess you could say, yeah. Um, is painfully slow. And, but then when, once the, the story accelerates, it accelerates hard. And all of a sudden you're like going mock two. Yeah. Yeah. But I, I almost wish it had been slower, honestly. Cause like that was, that was, my, I, that was another complaint. I like the mood never really set in correctly. I think. No, it didn't. It, it, it feels like two movies. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I almost wish they had more time to drag it out because I would love sort of a, a geometric 
I'd love to see a geometric takeover of a town by vampires, if that's where you're leading to, as long as you can come up with a good reason for it. Because it's like, okay, so the vampire guy comes to town, and on day one, he goes and he makes another vampire. So that's two vampires. And then, and then those two make two more. So then four and eight. And, you know, they mentioned that the town has about a thousand people. So it would be several days before things started getting really weird, you know, because. Well, and, and there, you know what, to, to your point, there's that moment in the movie where the cop starts noticing that people are missing and and basically like is trying to decide whether he wants to stay or not. Like that was super effective. That moment, that characterization, I thought that was amazing. Right, but they they didn't have time to like lean into it enough because he well, goes. Yeah, that's it, that's the thing. That's yeah. the thing. And, and again, that's that's why it feels like the tale of two films. And I I would have loved to have seen that slow descent into just oh, really, it would have been fascinating. Yeah, especially especially if you lean into the characterizations and the well, the weird small town relationships as as that happens. Yeah, and then especially if you lean into there, there's going to be a moment where the vampires start acting openly in the town during the night. You know, they're not hiding anymore, and and you know, first it might be one or two of them, but then more and more of them will do it because they'll get more and more like you know full of themselves and it, it, it could have been something like the, there were ways to make it different than the original one than just making it dark and creepy. And they, they, yeah, they kind of missed the boat on what they were trying to do, which is a shame overall would not recommend. So, so Jonathan, where do we put this on the King tier list? Man, I was just looking at that and I, I didn't think about this ahead of time to be honest with you. Neither did I. And I'm looking, I'm trying to figure out where it goes. Okay. I think I, I got- feel like it's like, Kind of around the same spot as Secret Window Dark Half. Get out of my head. That's where I was aiming. I was going to put it between the two because I think yeah, Secret- exactly. That's exactly where I want to put it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> if you've been keeping track, uh, that places it in space sixteen of twenty-five currently, right in between Secret Window and the Dark Half. And just like we've been talking about how it's this fifty-fifty movie, it's pretty much smack dab in the middle of the list. Deservedly so. It's it it is really weird, like just how, because it is a very different film than the original, and just how much it doesn't work <laughs> with the same, essentially the same story. I don't know. It's 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 interesting. It's an interesting viewing. I, I, I stand by what we've both said before. I think if Salem's Lot were to be redone by, um, hold on, what's his name? Uh, Mike Flanagan. <laughs> Flanagan. Thank you. I could. I had the mic and I wasn't getting the Flanagan. Well, we kind of already saw that. It was called Midnight Mass, and it was awesome. <laughs> and, yeah, and it was awesome. And that's just the thing. Like Midnight Mass shows what you can do with this story. Mm-hmm. Oh man, that's rough. What? Just like it. it it's it, Midnight Mass. Just kind of proves that the story, the setting, are both functional and perfect, and that ultimately it's just poor execution. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, Jonathan, next up, we have something I've literally never heard of before. We are going to review or deep dive or whatever it is we do. The movie. And you know what? Hmm. Sorry, real quick. Midnight Mass, the vampire has a reason. It has a motivation. It has a, a, it has a goal it's trying to accomplish. Well, you know what the beauty of that one is? Uh, it's both. So the priest has a reason. He's trying yeah. to do something, but the 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 head vampire himself, the uh the uh the whatever, whatever the character's name was that has the same spot in this in uh uh, uh Salem's Lot. It's unknowable, which works better, <laughs> you know? 
Like like the 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 head vampire itself being just this blank slate that you can't read. Um, that made it really interesting. And then the priest kind of interpreting it in different ways. I don't know. It was fascinating, but yeah, yeah, I, we, we straight up saw, we straight up saw Salem's lot by him. It, it was midnight mass. It was the same thing and it was way better. <laughs> it was real good. A little preachy at times liked its monologues. <laughs> anyway, so next up, next up, we're going to w- watch 2004 staying in 2004, Writing the Bullet, directed once again by our friend uh, Mick Garris, who directed previous things on this list, including, wow, The Fly 2, Sleepwalkers, good good stuff, Critters 2, Critters 2. Whoa, we're in for a treat. We're in for a treat. Yeah, yeah. So, there you go. He did, what did he do on our, it had to have been a TV series. Oh, wow. He did a lot of TV work. Yeah, it was definitely a TV series. What did he do? What was the thing that we watched? Because I, I know we talked about this guy before. What was his name again? Mick Garris. Oh, The Shining. He did The Shining, the TV series, yeah. the miniseries. Yeah, yeah, that's the guy. Cool. Which was actually decent. Yeah, yeah. So we'll see how this goes. We will see how this goes. I, I know nothing about this, and I'm not going to – I read the Wikipedia article enough to just make sure I had the correct stuff. And if you're playing along at home, it is available to stream for free on Pluto TV, Redbox, Plex, Tubi, Vudu, and that's it. I'm going to buy it, of course, or I'm going to rent it from my library so I don't have to watch it with ads because I hate that. And it's available. So oh, David Arquette's in this. So is Barbara <laughs> Hershey. Oh, that, that's both cringe and I'm intrigued. <laughs> yeah. Uh, oh, and Cliff Robertson is in it. Who's Cliff Robertson? Um, he is a character actor. When you see him, you'll be like, oh, that guy. He's been in everything. Um, oh, he's, he's one he of his Uncle Ben in Spider-Man in the, um, the 2002 Spider-Man. Mm, 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 mm. And David Arquette. Oh, yeah, that guy. Okay. Um, I think he was in Gidget way back in the day. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Gidget. Sweet. Cool, cool, cool. All right. Oh, this is going to be a... Oh my God, Matt Frewer's in it. Mm, that's not necessarily a good thing, friend. <laughs> my friend. I know, I know. It's a, talk about a guy who's had fifty percent awesome, fifty percent what the hell. Yeah, he'll always be Max Headroom in my head. He'll always be uh, the guy from the Lawnmower Man too in mine. Oh, there you go. Oh, this could be bad. I am excited. Yeah, yeah. Maybe we'll finally, finally knock Firestarter out of the bottom five. I don't think it deserves to be there. There has to be more terrible films than that. Firestarter was merely boring. <laughs> I, I I think this might be your best opportunity in the near future. I got to tell you. Whoa. Holy crap. What? Uh, hold on. Let me. I'm going to go check its Metacritic. I just saw something on my Google search. And I'm like, no. Because after, after riding the bullet is 1408, the mist, no smoking, which I haven't seen. I don't know if that's still available. I'll, I'll check at the time. Dolan's Cadillac. I, I don't remember that one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Carrie 2013. Weird, weird. Okay. Riding the Bullet is currently sitting at a 37 on the critics Metacritic, but a 5.3 on the user score. This this, this has potential. Mm-hmm. It's got four pos- positive, nine mixed, and two negative reviews. I'm just looking at our our list here. I know it's going to grow a little bit before we get to the end. 
Yeah, I'm pretty sure. I'm pretty sure. We're 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 they, go- they're redoing Salem's Lot again, right? They are uh, this year. Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, that that's an interesting story. I was reading about it. Oh, April! It's coming out in April. Oh, okay. You need to put a pin into that. So a lot of that information, it was going to be an HBO Max. It was going to be an HBO Max movie uh, before the Discovery takeover, and it's been kind of put into limbo since then. Much like it hasn't been put into cancellation land like Batgirl, but I, it was supposed to. They're thinking theaters, and they're thinking HBO Max, and it's been going back and forth. And so we'll see if it actually happens. We will see. I will expect it when I see it. Is what I'm saying. Because the last I heard it, it was delayed. Like they, they just they they haven't said what they're going to do with it. But you are right. It was supposed to be April. So we will see what actually happens. All right. Well, that brings us to the end of A King of All Things. Join us in our next episode when we talk about Ride the Bullet. And now it is time for a year in the life where we use our way back machine to look at what we were doing a full year ago. In FMD episode 123, Robert, what were we doing? FMD uh, 123, 1950-80. We were obviously talking about our favorite movie. Um, ah, shoot, and I'm blanking on the name now because I'm really tired. That musical, God. Oh, the the the, the 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 crazy one. Um, yeah. What was it called? Yeah. What the hell was it called? Oh, for God's sakes! Why? Streets of Fire. Of- there we go. <laughs> that took too long to dredge out. Yeah, 1958. We were talking about Streets of Fire, and we reviewed nothing. Because you were busy, and so we just did our first two segments. Well, there you go. Yay, I'm better this year. I have something to talk about. So let's see. Uh, Oh, we're talking about Ghostbusters Afterlife, or as your kids called it, the Blue Ghost movie. You're playing Guardians of the Galaxy, Horizon Zero Dawn. You're reading Leviathan Falls, I guess. Oh, Oh, man. I missed that series. I was reading the Swedish edition of uh, Powers of Darkness at the time. Fun stuff. Star Trek Discovery. I was playing Stellaris. Of course we were doing the Dracula dossier. Oh, I must have watched The Green Knight. Cool. And there you go. I like The Green Knight. I really enjoyed that movie. Mm-hmm. I did too. I did too. So yeah. And what was our king in all things? What was it? Did I not put the movie down? I may not have put the movie down. You must have watched Dune or read it because Dune's on here too. Uh, Probably rewatching it. Oh, there it is. We, re- we watched Pet Cemetery, buddy. There, there oh you my go. God. That's been a year. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. That's crazy. It doesn't feel like a year. Agreed. Pet Cemetery. So we were, that was what? One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven. Eleventh on our list. Mm hmm. Oh, man. That's crazy. Yeah. Good times. Good times. Kind of want to watch a Riding the Bullet trailer now. No, man. Embr- it. Embr- embrace it. Go in blind. Go in blind. I'm going in blind. I'm going in blind. That's a good idea. I'm, I'm excited. I'm going to go in blind. It'll be fun. All right. Well, that brings us to the end of A Year in the Life, which means it is breaky break time. And when we return, it will be time for our deep dive. And today we are deep diving fighters of the Pacific. We'll be back in a bit. Do you have a tabletop, board game, miniature game, or RPG that you're going to release for retail? Or do you have an upcoming tabletop Kickstarter that you're about to launch? We would love to interview you for a future episode of the Forgot My Dice podcast. Send us an email to fmdpodcast2016 at gmail.com to schedule an interview. (laughs) 
And welcome back from the break. It is now time for our deep dive. And on tonight's deep dive, I might have called it Heroes of the Pacific earlier, but I didn't mean to. It's actually Fighters of the Pacific. Relive the fury of air and sea combat in the Pacific during World War II. Direct each plane in multiple fighter and bomber squadrons to lead attacks on the enemy's carriers and island bases. No dice, no rulers, only dozens of planes and ships. A fast-paced and streamlined game mechanic that plunges you into the heart of battle. Whether you're a history buff or a fan of thrilling board games, Fighters of the Pacific is sure to provide hours of exciting gameplay. Jonathan, tell me how this game plays. Um, all right, let's walk through it. So... Setups is really important in this game, and it all starts up with the scenario, and the scenario is going to control so much of the game. The scenario basically lays out how to build up the modular board, what uh, aircraft and ships to grab and where to start them out. Um, you set up a reference sheet that tells you all about your, uh, your side. You're either going to be playing the Japanese Imperial Navy or the uh, American Navy. You set up a reference sheet. That reference sheet is going to be dictated again by the scenario that tells you, hey, um, you need to set up the last turn marker on, say, turn 15, and you um, get reinforcements on turn 12, things like that. You set that all up, and then once you've laid out all your ships and once you've laid out all your planes, and not every scenario has ships, uh, but all of them have planes, you are pretty much good to go. And one of the cool things I might add, and this is not something that I want, I, I, I've seen before and I thought it was really, really clever. This game is not small when you lay it out on the board. I mean, I sent you some pictures, Robert. It's pretty good size, yeah? Yeah. All of the reference sheets, the victory boards, the reference sheet, the initiative um, sheet, all of that stuff is double-sided. And one has everything laid out vertically and the other has everything laid out horizontally so that you could customized to the shape of your table. And I think that's freaking brilliant. And I can't believe I've never seen that before. Yeah, no, that's actually a very good idea. I'm just by that alone, like this game is worth having just because that's a legitimately good forward thinking idea that I've never seen before. It was so cool. Yeah, yeah, no, that is really good. Now, they could have gone the expensive route and made this game a bajillions of plastic minis and stuff like that, but they didn't. They made everything cardboard markers and it actually works better that way. Um, and I'll tell, tell you why in just a moment. Turns are relatively straightforward. There are three phases, and that's it. In phase one, it's called the initiative phase, and you determine who has the initiative. And that is all based on um, what you have out on the board at any given time. The scenario is going to tell you who has the first initiative for turn one, but after that, you determine initiative based on um, some handicap points. And you get one handicap point by having an air group at high altitude, two handicap points for having an air group at low altitude showing that uh, planes at low altitude are much more vulnerable to attack because they cannot create energy and one handicap point per damaged aircraft. You tally up what you have, you compare it to the other person and whoever has uh, the lower number is the person that retains initiative. And at first it seems like some of the scenarios might be lopsided and clearly inside of one or the other. This method for determining initiative is clever and really does a good job of balancing out gameplay. After you've determined initiative, you go into the activation phase. And during this phase, um, you are going to be alternately activating either one air group or one anti-aircraft. Um, let's talk about air groups for a moment. When planes are... So the, the, the entire board is nothing but a bunch of hexes. And your plane markers and your ship markers go in these hexes. 
Um, and planes that are flying in a hex next to another aircraft are con- considered linked together into an air group. All make sense? Yes, it all makes sense. Okay, cool. So the activation phase, you select one of your air groups, and then you activate all the airplanes in that air group. Now, there's nothing in the rules saying that you have to keep that air group together. So you could start out with an air group of, say, seven planes, but by the end of the turn, based on the movement that you've created, you might have split that up into three separate air groups, a two, a two, and a, you know, a, a, a three. Make sense? Yeah, yeah. Um, after you activate an air group, you are going to be moving each of the airplanes in that air group. And if there is an attack that you can resolve at the end of that movement, you're going to resolve all all of those attacks. You do this one airplane at a time until everything in the air group has been activated. And then it's the opponent's turn to activate an air group. Now, again, this is one of the interesting ways that this game balances itself out because by making it about air groups and not individual units, as the dogfight progresses and every, you know, fighters get split up, that can start to really have an uh, effect on initiative and w- and who retains it. Because since you're getting a handicap point per air group, keeping your planes clumped together is a really good way of retaining initiative. Um, and interestingly enough, in actual modern air combat, having your planes working together in, a, in an air group makes them more effective. So it makes sense that you're keeping initiative that way. It's really, it's, it's just really interesting that the whole initiative system in this just balances out so damn well. Like every time I played, I was just so impressed. All right. So let's talk about the things that you can do with your airplanes. Each plane is going to have a certain amount of movement points, and that's going to be based on the model of the aircraft. Most, uh, most base level aircraft that you're going to be starting out with in the early war are going to have, uh, three movement points and you have to spend all three in your turn. There's a couple of different ways that you can move a plane. Uh, you can advance it straight forward one hex. That's one movement point, very straight, uh, very straightforward, right? You could do a slide. So think about uh, the way an airplane can kind of bank sideways while retaining the same orientation. So like if you're heading due north, you'll still be heading due north, but you kind of slide to the right or the left while moving forward. Uh, that costs a movement point. You can turn, and this is where the hexes really kind of come into uh, come in handy. Turning means that you move to either the hex to your left forward or right forward, but you also turn your marker 60 degrees. So basically one face of the hex also counts as one movement point. You can do a dive and dives cost no movement point because you're basically using the plane's stored up energy by letting it lose altitude. And the way this is handled in the game is really, really clever. And this is one of the reasons why I'm so glad that they did not do plastic models and instead they stuck with cardboard tokens because the way they handle altitude is really neat. Tokens have the airplane printed on them, and on one side, it's surrounded by white clouds, and on the other side, it's surrounded by blue ocean. White clouds symbolize high altitude. Blue uh, ocean symbolizes that your plane is at low altitude. So when you dive, you move forward one hex, and you basically switch it from one side to the other, and that shows, hey, uh, you've, um, you've moved forward because you were in a dive. You've also lost altitude. And that costs no movement points because you didn't really have to do anything with your plane. You just let gravity do its thing. Now, alternatively, getting your plane back up to high altitude uh, is very expensive. That costs you two movement points and works the same way. You move forward one hex and uh, straight ahead and you go from low to high altitude. Next is kind of like the special move. And the special move is an air combat maneuver called a split S. 
So basically, you have your uh, plane facing one direction in a hex, and you choose one of the six hexes anywhere around your plane, and your plane moves facing the direction uh, outwardly of that hex. So basically, 60 degrees, um, you know, either straight forward, 60 degrees to your right, 120 degrees to your right, 180 degrees behind, and so on and so forth until you get all six sides of the hex. Um, and when you do a split S, not only can you basically turn yourself around, but you also lose all your altitude and go to low altitude. And that costs all of your movement points, no matter how many movement points your plane has. After you have used all your movement points, and you do have to use all your movement points, um, you will have an opportunity to uh, attack another airplane at the same altitude that you're in. Now, there are a couple of additional rules with movement points. You can never move, uh, perform a maneuver to the right after you've performed a, mover to, a maneuver to the left. You can do right, 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 but you can't do right, left, right. You can never perform a climb and a dive at the same moment. Makes sense. And then finally, you can never end your movement on another airplane at the same altitude on the same hex which can create some interesting situations because you could have a low altitude plane that's right underneath a high altitude plane. Now, at the end of your movement, once you've used up all your movement points, each aircraft is going to have a very unique field of fire. Um, the, the beginner aircraft that you use, the zero on the, um, the, zero on the uh, Japanese side and the Wildcat on the United States side, Basically, both have uh, the two hexes directly in front of the plane and one hex on either side. So basically forming a little kind of a bee's hive of four directly in front of the plane as their field of fire. If there is another plane in that field of fire, you're going to shoot at it. Planes that are being shot at have a compulsory move that they, they need to do uh, called the dodge. The dodge is basically um, only available to an airplane that has not been activated in that turn, and you need to use it to try and escape the field of fire from the other aircraft. If you can't escape that field of fire, you're going to take damage. The dodge is real simple. You can use a one-hex movement to advance, slide, or turn, and you can accompany it with a dive if you wish, which is not a rule that you have when you're just moving on your own. It's a defensive move only, diving and sliding, for instance. And you can also even do the split S in order to dodge, but here's the thing. After you dodge, your airplane has been considered activated. So even if you're not taking damage, you can force another player to activate their planes and, you know, be on the defensive footing, which makes sense. That's, you know, having the advantage in an air-to-air combat. Each plane's going to have armor value. If you don't escape that field of fire, you're going to take one damage, uh, unless the plane specifically says otherwise. For instance, the Zero has 20 millimeter cannons, so if you happen to be in the hex directly in front of your Zero, you're going to take double damage, which is pretty much an instant kill for most, most aircraft. If you, um, say, have a plane with armor level 2, but you only take one damage, you can then put a little smoke icon behind, the tr- behind your plane, showing that you are damaged and, and you know le- leaking oil and smoking a bit. If an airplane is shot at and it survives that damage... And after its uh, mandatory dodge, the attacking aircraft is still in that plane's field of fire. Then you have the ability to fire back. So imagine two planes coming at each other. They'll both take a pot shot at each other. And it is possible because of the field of fire that you can have these really neat chain reactions where, you know, 
uh, player one takes a shot at player two who dives out of the way that puts player uh, one's second fighter uh, directly in the field of fire. And so then they shoot at that and so on and so forth. It's, it, it really feels like a giant World War II dogfighting furball. It's awesome. Now, a lot of units, specifically ships and sometimes islands, will have anti-aircraft defenses, and those activate just like an air group, and they create something called a high-altitude barrage, which is a special token that you put on, and if you think of any World War II movie you've seen with airplanes, you'll know that those are the the giant anti-aircraft shells that explode really high up in the air and create little clouds. That is called flak, and yes, you can put up flak walls and try and take out your, your enemy's aircraft that way. After you've done all of your movements, it will be the end of your turn. And at that point, ships are moved. Any torpedoes that were dropped by torpedo bombers are moved. You'll remove any activation tokens, basically resetting the movement of uh, all the planes left on the board. Any any aircraft barrages that were fired up um, are then going to be removed. And depending on where your turn marker is, if there are any reinforcements that need to be brought in, they will then come in. And you always check victory conditions to see if one of the players has achieved their victory condition. Now, in some scenarios, you'll have ships. Um, ships are generally going to be targets that need to be destroyed. Uh, but ships also come equipped with anti-aircraft, which means they are directly involved in the battle. Ships have their own movement. Ships have their own um, ways of being hit and sunk. Uh, sometimes you'll deal with islands. Islands will generally have fixed anti-aircraft batteries on them. And then, depending on the types of planes you have, you might be dealing with bombs, which have their own little subset of rules in in how they engage with land targets and ship targets, torpedoes, and dive bombs. And that is pretty much the basics of it. Most scenarios will have a very specific uh, wind condition, and um, that that can go from destroying all of your enemy's fighters to destroying the entire fleet to capturing a specific island and any of the above. I'm noticing on the board there are some, uh, it appears to be clouds printed on it. Do those do anything or are they just there for fun? Yes, clouds actually can break up your line of sight. So for instance, if you fly into a cloud, you cannot be shot at. People can't see you. Huh. Actually, one of the times I played, I played with Lincoln and he was being really clever. I, I had him on the ropes. I, I, I should have been able to kill him. He was trying to burn the number of turns so that he could survive the game and, and force the end game. Uh, and he was using the clouds and flying his, his planes around and, and zipping in and out of the clouds to block me being able to shoot him down. It was really clever. Oh, nice. Okay. These tiles look double-sided. Are clouds on one side and on the other? Yes, so the the board game is modular, and um, there are some pre-printed islands on some, there are some clouds on some, and every scenario will tell you how to put the board together for that particular Uh, scenario. Oh, the islands are printed on too. I didn't think of that. Okay. Sorry, I'm looking at pictures from the the board game geeks. Yeah, it's okay. Um, Each of the airplanes will have their own uh, separate set of statistics. They all have different fields of fire. They all have different speeds and armor traits. And and sometimes they will have specific traits like Agile. Um, Agile, for instance, is on the uh, A6M0. And so because it's Agile, you get to perform a free 60-degree pivot, one notch on a hex, at the end of your movement, as long as you're respecting all the other normal rules of flight. Because the the Zero was such an Agile fighter uh, at the beginning of the war. It was much uh, quicker and maneuverable than anything else we had, but it was also unarmored, which meant it was really squishy. 
and that's represented because it only has an armor value of one, versus the American Wildcats, which were uh, quite a bit less um, agile um, and did not have as good of a, a weapon situation as the Zero. The Zero had those 20 millimeter cannons, which is represented by having double damage in that, that one hex in its firing arc. But the Wildcats had armor, which is something that Japanese planes did not have, and therefore they were a lot harder to shoot down. They could survive. And what gets really cool is some of the, the planes in the game, like the, the Dauntless and the Devastator, the, the torpedo bombers and the dive bombers, respectively, they had rear gunners, and those are represented by firing arcs in the, in the uh, uh, planes as well. So how's the rulebook do explaining all that? The rulebook is really straightforward. It's only eight pages. Most of the fiddly rules are going to be scenario-based. We kind of already went over the components because you, you were talking about them and how clever they were. And uh, I mean, the, the pictures I'm seeing on the interwebs make it look like it's it's all very pretty. I like it. Yeah, no, it's got a great art style. Everything is really super easy to read. The really neat thing that the scenario book does is it basically has the playing uh, the play field in the center of each scenario basically takes two pages. Like think of it like. Uh, yeah, yeah, I get you like a fold-out, and uh, the play field is in the center showing you how to get everything set up, how to lay out the tiles and where all the planes go and who has what. And then if you lay the, the scenario book straight in the middle of your game board, all of the U.S. stuff is printed on one side facing that player, and all of the Japanese stuff is printed on the other side facing the other player, so you can both look at it simultaneously and figure out what you need to do to get your side set up. It's really clever. Yeah, agreed. There is so much clever graphic design to aid players in this game. That's the thing that really stands out for me the most. Whoever put together the graphic design and came up with these ideas, uh, really just super clever. Is there anything off in the execution? The only thing I would say is that the, the plane tokens are a little bit on the small side, which makes sense when you have the whole board going. But because the U.S. Navy was painting all their planes the same blue color for a long time, it can sometimes be difficult unless you know what to look for to um, quickly identify what token is what plane. And that is that could be fixed with just organizing your game a little better, you know, getting some extra baggies and splitting all the planes into their own baggies. Yeah, yeah. So is this just a two-player game or is there more multiplayer in it? Well, that's where things get a little sticky. I back this game on Kickstarter, and so therefore I have things that other people don't. The base game that you can purchase at retail does not have a solitaire mode, does not have a, um, a true multiplayer mode, per se, beyond two players. It's meant to be a one-on-one. But if you back the Kickstarter, you get some additional stuff. You get a multiplayer mode, you get a face-to-face mode, and you more, most importantly, and this is the thing that I really enjoyed, you get a single-player mode. And the single-player mode is really clever. And so far, they've not released those to anybody, uh, anything but Kickstarter backers. They have not been put online as downloadable. So, yeah, that's kind of where you sit. The other thing I should tell you is that I ha- the version of the game that I have came with a lot of extra content because I went all in on the Kickstarter. I was really fascinated by this game. That content is set to be released to retail, but so far has not. So I have kept the review exclusively to cover the things covered in the base game. I've not, I've not talked about anything that was not in the um, expansions. That being said, the expansion content is really cool. It has a lot of new planes, which gives you a lot of new um, movement and firing options and really kind of deepens the game, which is not to say that the base game is, is, is having any kind of depth problem, 
but it just clips in really, really nicely. And I should also say that there's an advertisement in the box for Fighters of Europe, which is apparently coming at some point, and um, will clip into this system much the same way as the um, Undaunted game clips in. I should take away your one last thing to say, because it sounds like you just said it. But I'm going to say something else. Okay. Um, This game fits a really great niche. It is very easy to explain and very easy to teach. But especially with the altitude system and the way that the dogfights work, extremely, extremely deep. Almost chess-like in that you really have to think about how to manage your opponent by managing your own units and what kind of, you know, um, chain reactions you can trigger and controlling your opponent's activations by using your activations to basically herd them into traps and things like that. I mean, I'm just so impressed by the, the way this game simulates air combat in, in a way that is very cognizant of the way actual aircraft combat happened in the 1940s while simultaneously being super, super approachable to people that are not used to um, games like, say, X-Wing or whatnot, but also being minimalist in how you interact with it so that you don't end up with that that X-Wing level of um, analysis paralysis and having to remember what altitude things are at and all this other stuff. It's just, it's it's a much more simplified air combat game, which is not to say that it's not just as deep as any other combat game out there. It hits that sweet spot in a really spectacular way, and I'm I'm really impressed by this game. It's, it's, I backed it because it was a subject matter I liked. I did not expect a game of this this level of execution and quality. All right, that is Fighters of the Pacific by Don't Panic Games. Somebody's a... Uh, Hitchhiker's Guide fan. And it is out now, right? From what I'm seeing. Or maybe it's not. I've not seen it in retail yet. I just got my uh, Kickstarter copy about a month ago. Never mind. It is not out yet. (laughs) It'll be out soon, TM. We will see if it's Blizzard soon or real soon. Play us out, Jonathan. I really like this game. I I just, it, it hit a sweet spot for me. Yeah, no, I, I, I like the combat about it. And uh, because of what it is, when you brought up X-Wing, I'm like, you could reskin this to Star Wars so easily. Oh, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. But it's so much more approachable than X-Wing. Yeah, I know. And, you know, X-Wing gets so fiddly with all the rulers and the, the templates and all the other stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This just simplifies it. It just makes it awesome. Yeah, agreed. Am I sitting here thinking about making a Crimson Skies homebrew of this? Maybe. <laughs> Loser. <laughs> Play us out, Jonathan. So that brings us to the end of episode 140 of the Forgot My Dice podcast. Once again, join us on all of our digital domains. We would love to hear from you. Uh, if you want to play this on Board Game Arena, I understand there is a Board Game Arena module out there for this, is what I've been told. Robert, any final thoughts? Board Game Arena, you say? I believe so. It was either Board Game Arena or, or Tabletop Sim, but... There was a, a module for this released. Intriguing. And I'm all for it. I would gladly play this with you. Yeah, maybe if we get time or something. That's not my final thought. My final thought was, uh, so when I went to uh, <laughs> when I went to write the script for this, uh, the copy that they had on Board Game Geek about this board game was terrible. 
because it kept going on and on about the rules and the expansions and all this stuff. And it was obviously just copied and pasted from the Kickstarter, which was not what I wanted. Based off of some talks we're having over on the Discord, I started fooling around with ChatGPT uh, recently. And, <laughs> and so I, I was like, well... Chat GPT is really, really good at writing formulaic stuff. Uh, so I'm like, uh, can you write me something about this board game, Chat GPT? And it's like, sure thing, buddy. And it spat out something. And it was just like vague marketing nonsense. But its closing line was like that that was the zipper I needed to get out of like uh, whatever. So I, I took the most of the first paragraph that they give you in the uh, board game geek copy that the, the company actually wrote. And then I threw in the uh, the, the, the closer you know, the, the closing statement, the thing that the, the, the punch, the, the exclamation point, you know, whether you're a history buff or a fan of thrilling board games, Fighters of the Pacific is sure to provide hours of exciting gameplay. That was AI generated, my friend. <laughs> yeah, but you know what? That's pretty damn good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was funny. Um, I, I, I've been throwing stuff at it. And every time you ask it to do something creative, I would call it at best very pedestrian. But uh, I, I tossed in my idea of running Curse of Strahd in 1931, and uh, it spat out an idea for that that was legitimately very clever, and it got me thinking. And I'm like, oh, my God, an AI got me thinking. That's I don't know how to feel about that. This is interesting. But it was just a little bit dirty, but I understand. Yeah, just it spat out this idea. It's like, what if, what if you did this? And, and, and it, it listed a bunch of them. And again, a lot of them were pedestrian. But then there was this one. I'm like, and it got, you know, when you're in GM mode and, and like you read something and you just start thinking about the possibilities and you start, you know, branching out in your own head. Like, yeah, that totally started happening. I'm like, well, that's weird. That's very strange. Anyway, there you go. How have people been rating it on on Board Game Geek? Actually, let me look. Oh, it's got an eight point two. That's yeah, that's solid. That's freaking high. Yeah, but look at the look at the weight two two point two five out of five. That that shows you how approachable it is. I, I'll be honest with you, Robert. Like, it's gonna take a pretty spectacular game to not make this my game of the year. Wow, it's a bold statement. I came into this thinking I was going to get my World War II fix. I didn't realize I was going to get my strategy game, best strategy game I've played in a long time. All right, close this out, buddy. Well, Robert, there's only one last thing to do, and that is to be excellent to one another and party on, Robert. Party on, Jonathan. The music you heard in this podcast was intro by Elifiel. Additional music was provided by Brian Winkleman. Funding for the Forgot My Dice podcast was provided by our supporters on Patreon. Thank you 